uh, opening our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's definitely not the, the, the passage that I'm going to preach on so that the IT team doesn't panic that I, I changed my text. I uh, just wanted us to start there as we are talking about joy. And joy is what I want to talk to you about this morning. As we're starting this year, joy is a word that I would like you to focus on. Joy is a word that I want you to think about. And this is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, then what? You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Cornerstone, can I ask you? You happy? Thank you for the two of you who are. <laughs> you happy? Okay. I'm happy. But that's because that's what my name means, in case you wonder. Uh, Fali means happy or joy in, Ma in Malagasy, so I'm stuck with being happy. But uh, I don't want to be stuck with being happy. I want to be genuinely happy because of what I know to be true about my Lord and my relationship with Him. I want to be happy, and I want you to be happy. I want you to know of that joy. But isn't that amazing that throughout Scripture, we have to be commended to be joyful? We have to be mandated to rejoice. That should be one of the easiest things to do, to be happy. Why is it so hard? Why is it that the scripture has to commend us, be happy? You Christian, stop being sad and gloomy, be happy. Why is it that we have to be reminded those things? There are at least 25 verses in the Bible that calls us to rejoice in the Lord, and I know a few of them come to your mind right now. But the question that I want to ask you indeed, brothers and sisters, is are you truly rejoicing? Fully, truly, daily, exuberantly, continually, unreservedly, contently, are you rejoicing in Him? Are you happy? And so today, we're going to one of the passages of Scripture that's going to help us have the right perspective on life so that we will enjoy the life that God has given us under the sun. Yes, we will be in the book of Ecclesiastes today. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, as every good preacher does, Ecclesiastes, the whole book being a sermon, he opens up his sermon with this. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 1 to 3, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he asks this question. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? In other words, what's the point? What's the point of life under the sun? Why and how can life under the sun be enjoyable and enjoyed? How can we enjoy life? And at the end of the sermon, he makes it easy for us because he gives us the conclusion. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. There at the completely end, we saw the beginning, and now at the end, in verse 13 and 14, he gives us the end of the matter, the conclusion, the bottom line. 
And this is what he says, the end of the matter, all, with all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all man, mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon has been given incredible knowledge and discernment and unrestricted power and as well inexhaustible wealth. He had more than any of us can dream of having one day. And yet he came to the understanding of one thing that we must all understand through this book of Ecclesiastes. And it's this, life under the sun is meaningless and joyless without a proper relationship with the God who is above the sun and who made the sun. Life under the sun is meaningless and joyless without a proper relationship with the God who is above the sun and who created the sun because the fear of God is the key to the enjoyment of life. The fear of God is the key to the enjoyment of life under the sun. And with all of that said, let's go to our text. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You'll find it right after Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And let's read from verse 1 to 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 1 to 10. For I have given all this to my heart and explained it that righteous men, wise men, and their service are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything may be before him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers sac a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. And as the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is confidence. Surely, a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will never again have a portion in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in gladness, and drink your wine with a merry heart. Emphasis on merry heart, not on wine. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. See life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given to you under the sun, all the days of your vanity. For this is your portion in life and in your labor in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no working nor explaining, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol, where you are going. What a sobering text. And it's a text that faces us with three undeniable facts. 
three undeniable realities about life. And then he gonna, he's going to give us two perspectives on life based on those facts. He's going to first give us three undeniable facts about life, undeniable realities about life under the sun. And we could see that from verse 1 to 3. He's giving us those realities so that we would be reminded what is what does life under the sun really looks like? What does it mean to live on this planet? And he wants us to remind to remember those truths, those realities about life under the sun. The first one, you see it in verse 1 there, the first one. And you might be calling me through these Captain Obvious. It's okay. I'll take it. But it's better to be reminded of some of the obvious things sometimes. Because sometimes we even tend to forget the obvious. The first one is that we are not in control. The reality of life under the sun is that we are not in control. It tells us clearly here, there in verse 1, look there in the middle of, the, of, the, of verse 1, it says that everything, the lives of everybody, but in particular, the life of righteous men, wise men, those, their lives are in the hand of who? The hand of God. And it tells us at the end of verse 1 there that we do not know anything. Anything may be before us. Either good or bad. We have no clue of what's going to happen tomorrow. We are not in control of our future as much as we try to. We are trying to plan. And I'm sure some of you, because this is the time of the year, we are not the 14th of January yet. So a lot of you have made resolutions for the new year. Because usually it's by January 14th that those fall off. So because we're still early, some of those resolutions still stand so far, right? Okay, so we are trying as much as we can to try to get a grasp and control our future. But here the text tells us clearly that the Lord is in control. That every event of life, whether good or bad, whatever is our lot in this life, it is from the Lord's hand. Whatever happens to me comes from the merciful hand of God. It has to go through his gracious hand to get to my life. He is truly in control. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know someone who does. We have a relationship with one who does. A God who cares for us. And he's in control of everything day after day. And so I don't know about you, but that is a good place to be, isn't it? Not to be in control. We think that it's a bad place to be, not to be in control. And we want to control things. And believe me, especially as men, that's one thing we like. But as women, that's something you cherish. Amen, somebody. So his point here is to try to give us the right frame of mind and remind us of the reality that we are not in control. (coughs) Sorry. God is the one who sovereignly ordains and orchestrates everything according to his plan. That's what it means to be in control. And not only is he in control, but look with me there. 
the language that is being used is to show that there are some people that are particularly in his care. He's speaking of the righteous, of the wise, of those who fear the Lord, right? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who are wise and those who who are righteous, who are trying to live in righteousness, those are in God's special care. God cares for us particularly. He cares for those who fear Him particularly. And so regardless of how meaningless life seems around us, regardless of man's attempt, foolish attempts to try to control things, what we are called to do is to let go, is to let Him control our lives. Believe me, He does a better job than we do at that. I don't know about you, Cornerstone family, but I do am at times anxious about the future. I do easily worry. I do forget that my loving father is in control. I do allow myself to be overwhelmed by the things that are going on and it seems that everything is, you know, is kind of like swooshing past and I'm trying to grasp whatever I can in this life. And I forget that that's all from the hand of God. He's in control of everything. And I am not. And it's a good place to be. The second reality that he tells us is we're all going to die. We are all going to die. Isn't that a lovely Sunday morning? <laughs> That's a reality that none of us are going to escape. Death is an absolute certainty. Death awaits us all. For every individual will someday experience death. Tells us, of course, you know the verse, right? Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for men to die once, except for, the, except for the case of poor Lazarus, had to do it twice. But anyway, <laughs> it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. And that's for everybody. Look there with me in verse 2 and 3. He gives us some kind of contrasting pairs so that we would understand that we're talking about everybody and that everybody includes everybody. The righteous and the unrighteous. The wicked and the good. The clean and the unclean. The, the man who offers sacrifice and the one who does not sacrifice. The good man and the sinner. The one who swears and the one who is afraid to swear. The one who has some form of external religiosity and the one who doesn't. The one who is a, a hating atheist and the one who is a pretending Christian. Whoever it is, the one who is a fearer of God and the one who is a fearer of man. Whoever it is, we are all going to die. We're all going to die. And we share this common destiny to go to the grave. But we do not share the same eternal destiny. We are all going to the grave. But after that, some will go to heaven in the presence of God. And some won't. 
that part of our eternal destiny will be different. We'll be in one of two places, heaven or hell. And so the appeal here is to live life in light of the reality of death. Live life knowing that all of us one day will die and will face judgment. Knowing that all of us one day will die and will face the judge. And that our fate, eternal destiny, will depend on how we've lived our life here under the sun. It is so easy to be distracted, to forget what is important for the rest of our lives. But here is a call for us to live righteous, wise lives, which is in awareness that death is coming. Cornerstone, are you ready to face your maker? Are you ready to face your judge? Are you ready to stand before him on that day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you ready to stand before him on that day and see the whole work of your life being placed under your feet and he's going to set fire to it? And only what was worth it will remain. Everything that was wood and hay that was meaningless, that you spent your time under the sun, will be gone and remembered no more. And 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 reminds us that we will not all get the same reward in heaven because of that. Some of us, because they have used their lives for what really matters under the sun, will be rewarded and will get good gifts there. And some of us will get in there just with a burnt-smelling T-shirt that says, made it. It is so easy to lose focus, right? In this life where everything is going so fast and everything is about performance, we forget that for us everything is about faithfulness and it's about living our lives rightly, realizing that all, as he has said in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, you remember? For God will bring every work to judgment, whether good or bad. That's how the book ends. That's how our life on earth ends. And that's the bottom line. That's what matters. And then he's reminding us of the third reality. We're all bad. We're all bad. Look there at the second part of verse 3. In case you wonder, it's me trying to be mean or something. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are what? Full of evil and madness is in their hearts. So it's not me, it's the Bible calling us mad. Madness is in their hearts throughout their lives. And where they're done being crazy, they die. After words, they go to the dead. Evil is in the heart. 
And that was from the beginning, right? That's what even Moses tells us in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it reminds us that even at that time, so close to, you know, God creating the world, even then, the hearts of men were full of evil, were corrupted fully by evil. And the heart of the human problem is the human heart. That heart goes from madness to meanness daily. That heart is self-serving, is, is oriented towards turning away from God. And there is nothing that man can do about the condition of his own heart. It is sick beyond repair, Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us. And there is nothing man can do about it but God. But God. But God. He provided a way for us to have a new heart. He provided a way for us, for, for our heart problem to be fixed eternally. And not by doing some kind of patching on this whole heart, but giving us a new one. A new one that is occupied by His Holy Spirit and that is prompted daily to obey Him, to follow Him, to grow in the likeness of His Son. And that is the only solution. We are all bad, but we can be in the hands of a good God. And that good God can solve that problem of us being bad. We need to be reminded of those perspectives of life, don't we? We sometimes forget how bad we are. And we sometimes find cute terms to qualify our badness. I'm not bad, just have a little weakness. No, you're bad. That's not a sin, that's just a little shortcoming. No, it's a sin. So rather than us trying to find excuses about the realities of life, why don't we accept it and accept the solution that God provides? And in that is the necessity for a crucial change of perspective. And he gives us two essential perspectives on life under the sun that we should have. The first, and I'm continuing in my Captain Obvious path, being alive is better than to be dead. It's better to be alive than to be dead. In all aspects. Verse 4, it says, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is confidence. It's talking about having that confidence in the Lord doing something in your life. It speaks of the certitude one has about what God is about to do. It speaks about knowing that as long as you have life, God is still working in you that new life. And then he uses a bold metaphor there in verse 4. Look there. And even if you know a little bit of, you know, the Jewish culture of that time and of now, you would realize how bold that statement is. I could picture some people reading this and go, eh, cringing a little bit. What does he say? Surely, 
A live dog is better than a dead lion. That is shocking. Because those two animals typify extremes of wisdom and folly. In verse, and folly is spelled, you know, not my name. Uh, it's the symbol of power and weakness. We see that in places like Proverbs 26, 11 and or Proverbs 30, 30 tells us those things. And so it is saying here that the power, the majesty, the, the wisdom that the lion represents are meaningless if you are dead. They don't mean anything if you are dead. The, maj- the, the, the lowly that we could see here has this one advantage. He's maybe lowly in the eyes of the world, but he is alive. He is alive. And so everyone's love, hate, zeal will perish from the surface of the earth as we see there in verse 6. And life will continue on without you. Don't worry. The planet will continue to spin even if you're not here. But you will be at that point where you will, make, you will meet your maker face to face. And your judgment then will depend on how you live your life now. Have you received life? Have you accepted Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life? Are you alive in him? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? And I know that in a group like this, even though we are in Grace Community Church here at Cornerstone, I don't want you to be one of those that is mentioned in verse 2 and 3 who have an appearance of religiosity but are dead inside. You can be alive in Christ. He can give you new life and life to the full. I want you to know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Be alive today if you're not. But the second thing I want you to know and remember that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. And we come to verse 7. We come to that verse 7 where we see the commandment to go. Sounds familiar? Matthew 10, 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Genesis 1, 28, not as visible. Go and make babies. No, that's not exactly what it says, but basically that's what it says. But here, what are we commanded to go and do? Go and enjoy life. It says, go then and eat your bread in gladness and drink your wine with a merry heart. Go and enjoy life that I am giving you, says the Lord. 
It's not just a command, it's a wake-up call. It is a call for us to remember something that is very important because that is what God does every time He uses that word. When the word go is used, it is to remind us of something very important that we must do. So there is no time to waste. Stop your grumbling and murmuring and, and complaining and any other thing you're doing and be focusing on doing this is what we're being called to do, which is to go and live our life with gladness, with a merry heart. Stop brooding over your problems. We all have some. Get over your anxiety and enjoy God's gifts. And look at the gifts that he mentions there in verse 7 and then in verse 9 as well. He's not talking about some exceptional circumstances. He is talking about the common experiences of daily life, like eating and drinking. Simple things, right? And he's talking about relationships, the, the relationships that we have in our lives. Like here in verse 9, he underlines marriage here as one of those key relationships. And as he does that, he does that to remind us that everyday life is to be enjoyed. And that enjoyment is not based on some kind of perfect setting of circumstances in life, but that you can be happy in the simple life you have. You can be happy in the daily circumstances and the things that you do every day. How many of us now even don't even think about what they eat? They just eat mechanically. That's just supposed to do because you need to keep this machine going. But here he's telling us to pause and to even in something as trivial as eating, to pause and to be grateful and to rejoice on the fact that God has given you the ability to eat. He's calling us to enjoy meals. Simple meals. Doesn't say what kind of meal, though. Doesn't say only happy meals has to be enjoyed. I'm not trying to push any product here. But in, in Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, verse 17, Proverbs 15, verse 17 says, Better is a dish of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox and hatred in it. The hatred is in the meal, not in the ox. Just saying. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel and tranquility with it than a house full of feasting with strife. We can enjoy our food because of the joyful fellowship that God can bring and give to the Christian home. We can enjoy our meals and our everyday life because of the loving relationship that we have with one another and with the Lord. We can enjoy our meal knowing that in all of this, God has already accepted our works, as it says there in 7b, in verse 7. And so he's calling us in verse 8 to live our life daily as if it were a party. Look with me. Party looked different back then. Verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time 
and let not oil be lacking on your head. The white garments became, became an emblem, a representation of joy and festivity. Guests that are invited to parties would be dressed in white and you would put oil on their head as a symbol of hospitality and as well makes it easier for the waiter. The shiny heads are the guests. This makes it easier to bring the food to them in priority. So here we have this... Uh, this phrase that is given to us to say that the fragrant oils come uh, the, calls to mind things like hospitality, as we've mentioned, and as we see in Psalm 23, Psalm that was remi- reminded to us this morning, right? David says that his good shepherd anoints his head with oil. He's a special g- guest to God's party. It's a symbol as well of gladness. We see that in Isaiah 61 verse 3. And so he is saying, live every day as if you were celebrating. You are celebrating God's gift today. You're celebrating the opportunity that God gives you to put him on display. Be happy, rejoice about it, and don't be this grumpy camper that reluctantly, reluctantly goes to work backwards because whatever. Be happy. We're commanded so repeatedly to do that, right? Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Psalm 32 verse 11 says what? Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That was Psalm 32 verse 11. Psalm 2, verse 11, as he's celebrating the sun there, he concludes towards the end by saying, in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now that's deep. Ever rejoice and tremble at the same time? That's what we call to do, right? To live with the healthy fear of the Lord that enables us To truly rejoice. Because that's when the gift becomes a poison when we disconnect the gift to the giver. That's when the gift becomes a poison when we use the gift in a way that the giver hasn't appointed to. For us to use it. That's when we go wrong. But notice here, the key to enjoyment is to acknowledge that everything we have comes from and by God's grace. We are not called to abuse the gift. We are called to use the gift as how it's supposed to be used. And so enjoy the good things of life. Enjoy the goodness of God. But do not replace the goodness of God with the manifestation of His goodness. Enjoy the simple things in life. Enjoy that smell of a sizzling steak as you come home. That sip of water when you're thirsty on a hot day. That jacket from a friend when you are cold. Or your wife smiling at you as you open the door as you come home. Enjoy those things. 
enjoy those things. I don't know why Christians have increasingly been known to be the most frustrated and unhappy people on the way they look on the outside. What is it that we're grumbling about? What is it that we keep on being unhappy about? You know what it is? We're busy comparing ourselves to others and we forget about the good God who gave us exactly what we need to be enjoyed. That's why we grumble. So why is it that the Lord has to command us to enjoy life? A few reasons come to mind. Let me give you a few. Let's see how far we go. First of all, because we live in a dark world full of sin, suffering, and misery among those who have no hope and who have no God, and it rubs on us, and we forget that we are not of the world nor friends of this world. We forget that we are in this world, but we do have hope. We do have a God. But the worries and the suffering and everything going around us make us forget that perspective. We also easily forget the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who tells us in John 15, 11, that he has given us his joy and who has exemplified it for us as Hebrews 11 tells us because him, he didn't focus on his circumstances. He focused on the joy that was set before him and endured the cross because of that joy. It is also because we easily forget the fact that that joy needs to be nurtured. That joy in the Lord is not natural. Remember that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So we need to grow in that reliance and in allowing the Spirit to influence our heart so that we would live out that joy. Our natural tendency is to be ungrateful, to not like people, to just seek our own pleasures, and to complain about everything that comes in the way. Of that joy. But our Lord is reminding us that we need to focus on finding that true joy in the Lord. We cannot neglect our personal time with God and we, can, and we cannot um, get rid of those promises that that joy is based on. If you don't spend time daily with God, Cornerstone, don't be surprised that your joy starts to go away slowly. There's also the lack of unity, love and unity in our family setting or in the churches that we are in. I know it's not the case here, but sometimes in this individualistic society where everyone is looking for their own, we forget that the, the believer must not drink the world's Kool-Aid and fail to think the same way, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and having one purpose with other believers. That could rob us of our joy. And also, what could rob us of our joy is simply because we live in the flesh. We gratify the pleasures of the flesh, as Galatians 5.16 reminds us, Romans 13, verse 13 as well, reminds us of those things. But I would say, one of the main things that robs us of our joy is anxiety and worry. They choke our life joy and prevent us from seeing the good gifts from our most good father. We fear tomorrow and we forget to be happy today. So brothers and sisters, enjoy life. 
Enjoy the, Lord, the life that the Lord has given you. Cherish every moment. Take it as an opportunity to put your joy giver God on display. Your heart must overflow with joy and thankfulness for what he has done and for who he is. Realize how blessed you are just to be alive. Realize how blessed you are for not only being born, but for being born again. So our whole life should be joyful because it is a gift from God. And God made life under the sun to be enjoyed. We need to enjoy life this side of eternity because life under the sun is better than death. And life under the sun is a gift from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came under the sun to die so that we can enjoy life in connection with the God who is over the sun and made the sun. We're grateful that you, God, want to shine new life into our lives and through us to others. We're grateful, Lord, that you want to give us abundant hope and abundant joy. You want us to have meaningful and thriving lives based upon the confidence that we have in our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope of future, future eternal with you. And may we, as we wait for your return, may we enjoy the gifts that you've given us. May we live without fear, without anxiety. May we enjoy what you've given us. And it's in Jesus' name, the author and perfecter of our faith that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.